All right, KISS Army, welcome to the KISS FAQ Podcast. Thank you for giving us your time today and letting us into your head. I hope we don't do any damage. This is a KISS-related podcast by the board for the board. We hope that you enjoy. Hi there and welcome to the KISS FAQ Podcast. Today it's me and Mark and we're going to talk about KISS riffs. And today we're, we've picked some obscure KISS riffs, so we'll see if you uh, can recognize them. And while listening to the show, please feel free to comment on the YouTube page with your own favorite obscure KISS riffs. It would be pretty cool to see what you like. Uh, so, hello Mark, and I hope you're doing well over there in Canada. Hello Daniel, I'm doing very good. It's very nice weather over here, it's nice and mild. We're having a very mild winter, which is very nice. Yeah, that's nice. I wish it was the same case over here, but it's not. <laughs> it's been the coldest winter for in ages, actually. I don't know wow. what's wrong. Yeah, but uh, it, it's getting better. So today we're going to pick five riffs and uh, we'll list them from number five to our absolute favorite. And Mark, why don't you start with your number five? Let's see what you've brought to the table. Okay, so number five, and the funny thing is we were, before we started doing this, uh, I was thinking about what my fifth one was, and I remember that last night I actually did remember, I just remember what my fifth one actually was, but I'll I'll leave that one maybe at the end for like a special mention at the end. But the one I picked now uh, for it is a, a song that I, I really like, and, and uh, Dynasty is a record that I've always talked very highly about on That's the right. podcast. Uh, as being one of my favorite records and a record that sounds very much like New York City to me when I listen to it. But uh, this song is a song that Gene wrote and Gene always comes up with these interesting sort of guitar riffs I find. So let's do a, let's take a listen to me doing a charisma. And it goes something like this. That's a good pick. Um, yeah, do you remember when we ranked Dynasty way back? Mm -hmm. People might think that I Was Made For Loving You, one of the other songs would end up at position number one. But I think Charisma took the cake back then. I think it was the favorite among the panelists. And I do know that Cam, for example, is one of his favorites of all yes. time, I think. And I really enjoyed it when I saw, he played it live here in Sweden back in 2018 and it went over real well. So so what do you like in that riff? I, I just like that it's sort of the, the aggressive uh, attack of the playing, like that, that whole A chord. Gene, if you notice, Gene loves his A chords, the whole thing. A lot of his songs are based around A, right? And uh, I really enjoy that sort of 
aggressive sound to it. And I, I love how he does this pattern. If you'll notice, a lot of the times, any song that he's kind of involved with has the CBA thing. That he likes that a lot. Like, like you'll hear that a like lot. Diamond, though, that, yeah. that progression, right, in there a lot. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, but yeah, I, I really think that he, he likes to keep it simple. But it's it's always catchy. You can always kind mm -hmm. of mm -hmm. immediately know what he's doing uh, when he plays these kind of songs, you know. Yeah, um, my first pick kind of reminded me a little bit of charisma, but it's written by Ace and it's an old song. Ah. But it but it's also simple power chords. But there's something in the song that makes it so cool. I think it's kind of a dark song. It, it goes like this. Second album, I think, Harder yeah. Than Hell. Yeah. Um, I also enjoy some of Ace's lyrics. We talked about lyrics in, in, the, in one of the latest episodes, and this is one of our, his better lyrics, I think. There's some something mm, dark, sinister, both in the way the song sounds and also in the lyrics. I think uh, a little bit like some of his other tunes from from the early 70s so like uh, that one that peter chris sang what's it called um uh getaway and strange yeah getaway and all, and, yeah. all these kind of kinds of songs i think he has some cool lyrics in them so strange ways always been one of my favorites since the day i started playing guitar because it's such an easy song to play as well now I have some problem with my chord here falling over the guitar, but I hope it didn't mess it up totally. No, no. I, I really haven't uh, managed to get a hold of how I'm supposed to have the guitar and the chords and everything, but uh, I think you got the hang of it. And, yeah. and uh, it's a cool song. It's a cool riff. So I hope you guys listening, go go back and play that song and uh, turn up the volume to 10. It's, it's uh, Yeah, well, that, cool. that one... That one is actually uh, one of the songs. When we talk about Hotter Than Hell, we always seem to talk about how we don't like the sound of the record. How it sounds very muddy yeah. and stuff like that. But that song actually works perfectly with that production that's on that record. I mean, if, if any song benefited from that, it's probably that song. It has such a dark tone to it just to begin with. So that kind of production added to it very well. So, And it's, it's kind of a shame that they put it at the end of the record. I think it could have benefited from being more higher up on the ranking there. Yeah, I remember, I think Eric Singer liked it a lot, and he played with his solo band in the early 2000s called Eric Singer Project. Uh, I think he had Joe, John Karabi singing it, and it sounded real cool. Um, and I don't know if Bruce has done it as well, I'm not sure. But 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 I do recall 
Eric Singer, both singing it really well and <clears throat> the band sounding cool. So you, you can go and check it out on YouTube. Uh, some Eric's, I think his band was called the, the Eric Singer Project or something. Yeah, something like yeah. ESP, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so that's number five out of the way. Number four then, Mark, what's your number four? Okay, so number four for me uh, was a song, uh, when I was thinking about these ones, I was thinking, you know, not, not to go for the obvious songs, you know, like Detroit Rock City and stuff like that. Uh, and the best thing to go to, obviously, and this is not an insult to Gene, is to find some Gene songs because normally on most of the records, Paul's songs got the ones that got the push, you know, from, from, as yeah. the singles and stuff like that. So a great example, though, again, of Gene's writing and his uh, riff writing is this song here that I got that I'm going to do for you from the uh, Love Gun album, uh, and this is a song that I know Ken really enjoys. He talks about this song a lot. How he always, he's always protected it and you know said that it's a good song. Is uh, "God Love for Sale," uh, mm -hmm. and this song I believe is one of the ones. I think it's the one that he did. He might have did with Eddie and them. If not, then it's it's one of the other ones. But uh, but it's again this is a, a riff in A. Once again, Gene loves his A riffs. So it goes something like this. Cool. So that that's uh kind of like the you know that's the standard a sort of progression that he does in there. What I kind of what I love about this part though is that instead of just doing a, a straight E chord in the pre-chorus part, he does that little a little bluesy kind of chromatic riff in there. It always sounds it sounds good when you do stuff like that. It just to give it a little bit more of a you know, a little bit more riffing to it than just standard chording in there. So yeah, that's a another great deep cut from Gene. Yeah, I love you when you pick those deep cups cuts that I haven't thought about for ages. Um, hmm. I feel I have to go to, and listen to that song. Sometimes you you can listen to songs without noticing the great riffing in them. You need someone to show you the riff in order to be able to hear it. I find that when you hear like early versions of songs without vocals you you you're able to pick up on the riffing a whole lot more at least i do so i like a lot of those early versions of songs without uh vocals because the, the at times kisses riffs are a bit back in the production so so yeah can be good you know the vocals are always up front especially during the 80s i think okay uh my next song is uh, actually an 80s song and it's from uh, 83 I don't know how much Vinny had to do with this song but I've always loved the, the riff uh, it's a pretty fast one and they did it live but I still consider it uh, a deep cut because <clears throat> they haven't played it since 84 85 somewhere around there it goes something like this <laughs> 
Young and Wasted. Yes. Young and Wasted. Uh, if you recall, Eric sang this song on Animalized Live Uncensored from Detroit, 85. And um, it's a fast song. It's a simple but still a cool riff, and it sounds kind of metal. Uh, back then, Kiss tried to piggyback off of some of the, I guess, the new wave of British heavy metal and, and that sort of stuff. And mm. I think they succeeded at times. They made some cool, hard, heavy metal songs. And this is one of them. And um, actually, during the 80s, the, the core of their their set was 80s songs. So they had a lot from Lick It Up and Animalize and those albums that and Creatures of the Night that they played for years and years because uh, the old stuff was sort of tainted. It wasn't cool yeah that decade but then they they started to blend their the the old stuff and the new stuff when it came time for the hot in the shade tour in 1990 but all the way through the 80s they played a lot of these sort of type songs and uh, i still enjoy them and i think lick it up is one of the strongest albums from from the 80s asylum is of course my, one of my favorites and creatures as well but lick it up still is cool and this is one of the cool songs off of that album. What's your relationship to Young and Wasted? Do you remember Eric Singer, Eric Carr singing it and, and that stuff? Oh yeah, I mean, I remember when I when I first saw Animalize the live show there in Detroit, and uh, yeah. I was always impressed by him singing that because number one, it's a very fast song, not only on guitar, but can you imagine playing it on drums and having to sing that as well? I mean, he, I'm surprised he wasn't like breathing heavily in the microphone trying to do it. So it just shows that how much stamina he had as a drummer and how good a singer he was. I mean, that 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 could that can't be stressed enough that how great a singer he was. And uh, they should have really let him do more vocals on Kiss albums. I think that was one of the mistakes that Kiss made in the '80s was not letting him sing on a record, especially when he brought some pretty good stuff. Like yeah. he, he had some songs that were way better than the stuff they used for Crazy Nights and and Hot in the Shade, but um, I think it had to do something with Paul Yin not wanting to you know um, sharing the limelight. Yeah, they don't want to. Well, they, if you think about it, back then they were they were kind of running to a bit of monetary trouble too. They weren't exactly selling as much, and where where those guys make a lot of money, of course, is from songwriting credits. So mm -hmm. if you start giving those songwriting credits away to other people, you start getting less, and th those guys probably weren't happy with that idea, right? So One cool thing with these old songs is that nowadays you can go on YouTube and, and uh, that sort of stuff and find people who play uh, drum covers, guitar covers, and all sort of stuff. Um, and I enjoyed a, a guy playing the drum, making a drum cover when you're focusing on the drums. Yeah. And as you said, just imagine playing that kind of stuff and also singing. Uh, but, but there are some cool drum covers and there's a cool cover of uh, this song on, on YouTube that I recommend if, you, if you're interested in, in this, these type of songs. Okay, so that's uh, number four out of the way. Moving on to the bronze medal, number three. All Mark. right. So this time I'm just going to talk about it a bit, but I'm not going to tell you what it is because I've been noticing that Daniel's been playing it first and then telling you so that you can kind of guess what it is. Uh, that was my mistake for the first two. I didn't do that. But for this song, uh, I really am a big fan of the solo records. 
uh, ever since they came out in 78 and my older sister bought some of them, I was always fascinated by it because she had, I think she had three of them. I think she had Jean's, she had Paul's, and she had uh, Peter's actually. So she didn't have Aces at the time. But just having those three albums and I was noticing, wow, they, they, they look almost the same, but they have different colors and different, you know, the, just the, the connection to them was so fascinating. And she played them a lot, so I, I knew them pretty intimately. And then later on when I started playing guitar, you know, some of those songs really stuck in in my head. And uh, so here's one of them. This is not exactly a, a popular song from this album, but I think among KISS fans, they, they really like the song. So it goes something like this. So that's, of course, Mr. Ace Freely yeah. doing Snowblind. And that's uh, one of those really cool songs. It, it doesn't have a lot of parts to it, but the parts that he does have in there are really, really memorable, I find. Like that lick there. And what I find really cool about that introductory riff is that basically it's the same thing, but in different positions. Like That's the same thing as... But it's just mm -hmm. different positions, and there's some different notes added in there, uh, different chordings, right? So I think that it's very, very cool uh, how he wrote that because I think on the album he might have combined those two, but when he plays them, when he plays it live, he separates them. One time mm -hmm. he does the, the one down here, and then one time mm -hmm. he does it down here. So uh, great, great song. Uh, again, of course, the topic matter is something that he knew very much about, which was cocaine, snowblind. Yeah. Uh, but it, it, it's it's such a great song. Uh, and again, it has a lot of his signature kind of playing in there from top to bottom. That whole album, is, uh, to me, is a five out of five. Yeah, I agree. It's one of my favorite albums, the Ace Frehley solo album from 78. Uh, unfortunately, I was never able to repeat it, even though I kind of like Travel Walking from 92. I think it's a pretty cool album as well. And the first Frehley's Comets is okay as well. Uh, we'll see what happens with the new album, 10,000 mm. Volts. Yes. Uh, some people say that it's more of a trickster album than an Ace Frehley's <laughs> album. But, but we'll see. I kind of like the first song. I thought it was kind of cool. Uh, but, you know, that's the first time Ace stole a title from Black Sabbath. Snowblind. Yes. The same when they... Uh, did the Psycho Circus album, Into the Void. That's mm. actually a, a great Black Sabbath song as well. Um, well, we've played Black Sabbath on, on earlier previous shows because it seems that Black Sabbath has been an influence for both you and me. And of course, some of their early albums are, are killer. Oh, yeah. Uh, yep. 
number three for me then. Uh, this is a little bit of a, a newer song from from the nineties, and we've played "Unholy." You liked "Unholy," I like "Unholy" as well. And this mm -hmm. is from the same album, and it's also Gene's song. They actually did it live uh, during the mid nineties, but it hasn't been played since then. Um, maybe he did it on his solo tour, but but I kind of like the riff, and actually it's it's lifted off of a song from from an album with with. Um, Tommy Thayer. like the I, I kind of like that yeah. riff that he uses and I know they did it on some it was the black and blue album with Tommy Thayer and he kind of mm. ripped it off yeah uh, I, guess, I guess Paul didn't know it but uh, Otherwise, he would have stopped it. But but I always like the parts in Domino. I think it's a well thought out song. The intro is pretty cool with the picking, you know, that kind of stuff, mm. and uh, uh, sort of a boogie boogie riff all through the song, and and you have a cool bridge as well, and the ending is kind of a cool with a. So yeah. there's a, a lot of parts in that song that I like. Uh, it didn't translate live, uh, much like Unholy didn't translate very very well live. I guess both were kind of hard for him to sing, but on the album, on Revenge from 92, uh, I do like both songs. So so what do you think about Domino as a song? I, I always liked Domino. Um, one of the things about Domino that I, I liked was, again, that sort of bluesy, bluesy tinge that he always puts to his riffs or like the like he said the like that again there there's that G yeah, G thing is. that he does there, right? Yeah. So uh but I always thought that uh, that was very cool. Uh the, the thing that's interesting about it for people if they're if they want to know more about it, you were mentioning that it is it is a song that they got from Tommy Thayer. Uh actually I think that on the early uh grade that the box set, that five disc set that came out in the two thousands, yeah. uh there's a there's a demo of that song that 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 he sings Domino on there, and it's just the other band that plays it. And he just sings on it, right? Mm -hmm. So there's there is an early version of it, like a demo version on the on that box set that came out, uh, which is which is interesting to hear because it's pretty much the whole song, there. Mm -hmm. It's just you know they, they just talk, Gene just pretty much said, okay, thank you, I'll take that, and that was that, right? <laughs> so, but but it, it it turned out to be a great song, and of course the problem 
with it live is that Gene sings in a lower register on this yeah. to make it sound mean. And in the studio, you can do that because you can go into your mixing board, turn up the gain so that he doesn't even have to sing very loud. He can just go, never had... Like, he can just sing really deep and low, and it sounds fantastic in the mix. But when you have to go and sing in front of 20,000 people and the PA system's already loud as hell and you have to try to get your voice over that, it just didn't translate well, right? So, yeah. it, but it's a great song nonetheless. Yeah, uh, I think he has quite a few cool songs on, on Revenge. Um, uh, so Bob Estrin maybe did some good work on that album. So 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 uh, we have to give him props where, where props are due. Okay, uh, now we're on to the your second favorite, number two. Um, let's hear what yeah. you picked for number two. Okay, so number two again, this is from, a, from the solo albums. Uh, and I'll never forget the first time I heard this because, as I said earlier, my sister had three of the four albums. And then when I finally got the fourth album, which obviously I did Snowblind earlier, uh, when I got this album and I first heard it, uh, th this song immediately just caught me right away. And I thought the first time I heard this, I go, this is going to be one of my favorite records easily for sure because it was it had such energy and this song also had some really, really, really killer drumming on it. So let me play a bit of this for you. It goes like this. So on and so on. Yeah. Right, and all that. Mm. Actually, to, to make it more accurate, it probably sounds something like this. Yeah. So it, it's that, that kind of uh, pentatonic E that he does. Mm. In but again, the first time I heard that song, I was mm. like, wow! Like it just had so much power, so much energy into it. And and I had some great singing. Like I, I I was really surprised the first time I heard him sing that. I was like, wow, he's he really 
was pushing and it, it sounded really cool, right? And of mm -hmm. course, when Anton did those drum fills in the middle there, that, that, that was, I was completely sold. Yeah, I think it was pretty cool that he brought back Anton Fig for this new record. Um, he actually, Absolutely. He, first they recorded it, but then he felt this isn't 10 out of 10. I need Anton. So he gave him a call and he, he laid down the drums for, uh, I think, three, four, five songs on that album. And yeah, my one of my favorite clips with Anton Fig is the one where they where they're doing breakout live in the studio. Uh, oh yeah, I, I think it's from some sort of drum instructional video that Anton did in the the early '90s or something like that. Uh, there's a clip of that on, on YouTube, and you can really see the skills of Anton and what he brings to the song. And um, I wonder how Unmasked and Dynasty would have sounded with Peter Chris behind the drums. <laughs> I think they would would maybe have sounded different at least. Yeah, it would. Because I mean, some I, of the fields there are wild. Nothing that oh, yeah. ever was close to doing. I mean, let's put it this way: Torpedo Girl. There's no way. There's no, no way Peter Chris would have been able to do that. That's such a complicated drum beat and pattern in there that I just don't think that Peter would have did it that way. Well, uh, it would have sounded different. That's for sure. Um, mm. But he, he has done some great stuff for, for KISS through the years, and it's nice to see him still active and still bringing it. So Because yes. I like the drums on, I think he, he did the drums on the, the latest single from Ace. I like that intro. Uh, that's so yeah. typical Anton Fig. Yeah. So that's a real good pick. Uh, my number two goes back to the early 80s. Um, this is an album that I don't think was released right away over there in, in North America. It was first released in, in Europe, I think, and maybe Japan. It's the Kiss Killers album mm. with four new Paul Stanley tracks, where Paul Stanley kind of found his way back from the fiasco that was The Elder. Uh, there was no falsetto singing. No wizards and stormy seas and stuff <laughs> like that. Just simple hard rock and he brought I think he recorded a lot with Eric Carr and actually Bob Kulik so some of the solos on these new tracks are wild and, and Bob Bob Kulik isn't trying to sound like Ace Frehley he's doing his own stuff um, yeah. and I like the solos on this song but but I also like the riff it's it's a once again a pretty simple one but I, the first time I heard it I I was uh, immediately taken aback by it, so uh, and, and I've liked it ever since. It goes like this. in crime yes uh, 
The four Paul Stanley songs on that album, I do enjoy all of them. Partners in Crime and Nowhere to Run might be my favorites, but I think all four are okay. And it's mind-boggling to think that he could do these kinds of songs in that short amount of time. Four songs, you know, in... I don't know how many months passed between The Elder and Kiss Killers, but, but it wasn't even a year. And he brought this kind of stuff. And they are kind of a... Th this is kind of a throwaway on that album. It never got the recognition it needed. Uh, much like... Um, Maybe those songs on, on the fourth side of Alive 2, some of those songs I would like to see on, on a regular studio album like All American Man and Rocket Ride and that kind of stuff. Uh, so th there are some great songs on these compilation albums. It can't be said about the compilation album from 88. Uh, those two <laughs> new songs belong on that compilation album. Nowhere near a studio album. You know, X and no. Sex and, and Rock Hard. But this cool cool riff and of course by this time paul stanley's vocals were so awesome uh and he sings his heart out on this song uh, and especially on no nowhere to run i think is one of his best best vocals ever maybe so what do you think about kiss killers and partners in crime uh, i love kiss killers actually i from what i remember back when i was pretty young and i was going to the music store i remember seeing kiss killers on vinyl and it had that big you know imported you know import yeah. sticker on it and uh that's one of the very first vinyl records i ever bought actually okay. was kiss killers just by myself i was like hey could i buy this and my mom's like okay great and she gave me the money and i bought it and uh i really loved it because again early on you know i was pretty young then and because it had songs that i knew like you know rock and roll night and cold gin and all these other songs that were the greatest hits on there i immediately wanted to grab it and i thought that the picture was interesting because it had this odd pink background and their haircuts were all different and yeah. you know it just immediately took me by surprise but the but now like listening to it nowadays you know songs like partners in crime and i'm a legend tonight they're they're kind of forgotten gems in my opinion because they're they're not bad songs at all i, mean, I think that i think the I think the weakest one out of the four is down on down on my yeah. down on your knees. I think is the one that's sort of the weakest of the four, but th th they're all pretty good. But the, the definitely nowhere to nowhere to run is is the real standout on that. But you know, there's some great riffs on the, these songs too. So way to go, Paul, for writing some classic material there. Yeah. So that's a deep cut from Kiss Killers, and <clears throat> let's move on to number one. What's your pick for number one mark well but number one for me this is pretty simple i mean I, as you can kind of tell initially when i started thinking of these songs and what to pick i was sort of on a solo album kick i was almost ready believe it or not to do it kind of exclusively solo records i was thinking about maybe doing you know tunnel of love or something like that and then i realized that there was nothing really cool about those parts and then i was i was trying to find something from peter chris's to do and i was like there's just no way i, I couldn't do like you know uh you know what's that uh that's the kind of sugar papa likes or nothing like that I, I just i couldn't do it so i stuck with the good stuff and number one for me is going to be obviously from paul stanley's album and uh i think i think you'll recognize it <laughs> Thank you. 
Beautiful. No worries. No, tomorrow, tonight you belong to me, sorry, uh, is definitely another one of these songs. I mean, th if you think about it, every one of the opening songs in the solo tracks are, are fantastic. You know, Radioactive, I think, is pretty good. You know, th th this song is a great opener for Paul's, and, you know, we, we had Rip It Out for Aces, but this one, I think, is really 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 great i mean and, and, and another interesting thing about this song for example is the whole beginning part of the song that has the whole so basically that's played on 12 string that part right and then there's like another high part like that comes like that he does up high and doubles it right so it, it, that whole thing when you listen to it it, it kind of is almost a throwback almost to like, I want you with that whole beginning, how he yeah, does it with the yeah. 12 string on there as mm -hmm. well. So Paul was really into that sort of 12 string acoustic guitar, doubling it with the six string acoustic guitar and doing these little introductory pieces. Even if you think about it from the very beginning, Black Diamond has that sort of thing as well with the 12 string at the beginning. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. it, this is nothing new for Paul, but it, it's definitely something that he, likes to do where he throws in a light part and then you get into this really big heavy bombastic part afterwards yeah and also much like when you talked about tears of falling this is another song where he has like open breathing chords during the verses yeah. and that's what works for him uh, always when he tries to sing over a, a riff like uh, uh, some of the stuff of, of carnival of souls yeah really work I prefer when he does the Tears of Falling type of riffs. Yeah. Um, it works for his singing much better. Okay, that's a great pick and a great album. Um, imagine what an album it could have been if they would have made one Kiss album out of all those. Out of stuff. all those, eh? Yeah. But, uh, but we would have missed out on a lot of songs as well. So I don't know if it's a blessing in disguise. My number one is uh riff that kind of resembles riffs that you've heard previously from other bands i'm a sucker for the open this what is it g g and d string i like that sound you know like oh yeah that sound and sometimes kiss uses those two open strings and they did that back in 77 when they record a song and i guess paul was influenced by burn by deep purple maybe and you've heard it later on on asylum there's a song how how, how is it it's kind of the same thing but but the one i'm, I'm going for now is from alive 2 uh, the studio side it goes like this
you know, such All a cool American. riff, sort of a rip off of off of Burn, but um, hey, you can you can pick and choose if if you pick good stuff and change it a little bit. Um, I always love that riff, and uh, also Bob Kulik is doing a hell of a job on the solo and the fills. Uh, because I guess he's, he was the one playing almost all the guitars on that song uh, with Paul. Uh, yeah. Uh, but imagine if they could have picked this one or uh, Rocket Ride instead of Then She Kissed Me on Love Gun. <laughs> have one of these songs on. Because I think Love Gun was the first album where they started to show some weak. Uh, it, it had its weak weak parts. Uh, yeah. You know, moving on from Rock and Roll Over, which was, which was a beautiful record, perfect, sounding great, great songs. On Love Gun, they, the cracks started to show, and it, it, it badly needed Rocket Ride and um, All American Man in order to make it a great album. But unfortunately, they were stuck on, on, on the fourth side of Alive 2. But uh, I just love that that open sounds so so cool. So all American man, if you missed it, well I guess if you you're watching this, you're a hardcore fan, so you know what it is. But I think in general pe people don't know that song, and uh, it's unfortunate because it's a hell of a song. So that's my number one, and that's our five obscure <laughs> deep cuts. Um, I like the the ones you picked, and of course I like mine as well. Yes. But if we if we move on and talk a little about a little bit about our influences, um, in the previous episode we talked a bit about Sabbath. But if you think back, when did you actually start playing guitar, Mark? Were you ten uh, years old, fifteen or seven? It was it was more like fourteen. I started fourteen yeah. years old. Uh, I remember I, I started picking up the guitar around 14. By 15, I was already, you know, starting to get okay at it. And by 16, I was in the studio with my very first band doing a four-song okay. demo that was really, Whoa. you know, really uh, pretty basic at that time. But still, at 16, we thought it was the greatest thing that we ever did. You know, when you're, mm -hmm. you know, when you're young, you don't know any better, right? And just to be in a recording studio was like, wow, yeah. it was like so incredible to be inside there. And, you know, seeing the tape going and you're recording and you're so stressed out, you know, doing it, you know, but it was fun to do that stuff. But Black Sabbath was the very first stuff that, yeah. you know, of course that got me into playing guitar, you know, like stuff like, uh, oops, uh, I get back my sound. Yeah, it's been a while since I played some of this stuff. Yeah, yeah. Like, you know. Oh, what's a good note? Mm 
You know, all but, those kind of... Yeah, but there, there was no internet back then. How did you go about learning the stuff? Oh, that... that learning it was, was tricky, and it also, let me tell you, it also made me have to buy the record several times because I used to buy it on cassette, right? Yeah. And so I would go play it on the cassette, and you'd listen to the first 10 seconds and pause it. Go and try to, you know, figure it out, rewind it, listen to it play with it oh that, that's not right rewind it again so i would go stop forward back so many times yeah. that the tape eventually would just like snap and that's the end of the tape so i have to go buy another tape right so i must have bought some of these black sabbath stuff like jesus hundreds of times you know oh lord but no, some but, of, but some of the, sorry go on you didn't come across any tablature or something like that mm, that you used tablature i didn't get into until Later, when I went, to, I went into the music store, uh, music store, the, the bookstore, and they have a yeah. huge magazine section. Yeah. And they had this magazine back in the day called Guitar for the Practicing Musician, mm -hmm. and it said on there four songs in tablature. And I was like, "What the hell is that?" I went and yeah. took a look, and I opened it, and all of a sudden, my whole world changed because I had, yeah. you know, notation and where to mm -hmm. put the frets and stuff like that. And I was like, "Oh, okay." So I, I remember the very first time I saw it, they they had like. The, they had a rush song and i was like oh and i wonder mm. immediately got it and the first song that i remember seeing on there was this song <laughs> right as soon as i was able to figure that out i was like this is incredible i was so happy that, that i've discovered you know tablature yeah tablature i learned saves. dozens of songs you know yeah i remember um uh, going with my mother she worked at a school and they had internet pretty early on on at, at school we oh. didn't have it at home so i followed her and i printed hundreds and hundreds <laughs> of pages of tablature <laughs> just when the internet started like in 95 somewhere around there uh, and i started off with kiss but then we played a lot of, of this <laughs> Metallica's. Oh yeah. Metallica, the Black Album, was the shit back in '91. I remember playing ice hockey back then, and always before starting the games, we played. <laughs> Such a cool riff. But my favorite must, I think, is uh, this one. That's one of the yeah. heaviest riff of, riffs of all time. I think the Black Album is sort of looked down upon by the hardcore Metallica fans that, that found Metallica in the early years, but I think still to this day, probably one of my favorite albums. And of course, Kill em All is such a cool record as well. Um, I kind of like the simplicity, uh, the, the more simplistic way of approaching <laughs> songs on, on 
on uh, the black album i guess you prefer your favorite must be maybe the the previous one what is it called from 88 justice for all yeah justice for all or master uh, puppets um actually i i liked i like master puppets was my my album i mean when, okay. when i first got that I, I was i was right into that stuff i mean i remember lots of little things like Come on. Right, and you know, all that stuff in there. But you know, of course, the other stuff. Like... All that, all that stuff was great. Yeah. Uh, the, and then, of course, another song I really loved off that album was that Sanctuary, welcome home. That was that was always yeah. great. I mean, th everything on that album, I I I really loved. You know, hmm. uh, I'm trying to remember. Like album. I used to know that whole album beginning to end. You know? <laughs> like all of that stuff was like oh, yeah. ingrained in my head, right? Yeah, I, I I think I like all the albums up to, uh, but but the last one I, I liked was actually the Black album. I don't think I've I've really uh, been taken aback by any of the, the the albums after that. Do you have any favorite Metallica albums? Some people say that, for example, Death Magnetic is a return to to greatness, or or one of these two latest ones. Uh, I really haven't. Her, I, I, I don't really. Um, I, I, they weren't my type of my cup of tea. Well, Death Magnetic, I, di I didn't really like too much. I mean, first of all, I found her to be a difficult listen. It was heavy in the time of the whole uh, loudness wars. So when mm. if you were listening to that on you know CD, it was just impossible to listen to. It was terrible sounding. Uh, hard uh, the, that hardwired one. Uh, Self destruct. Yeah. Yeah, that that one, I, I, I didn't didn't like that one too much but i'll have to be honest i do like 72 seasons mm -hmm. i bought it and i listened to it quite a lot i mean it was in my car for quite a quite a long time actually that album and it, and it really i'm not going to say it's a return to form or something like that like mm -hmm. it'll never be to me like what ride the lightning was or master of puppets but it definitely has more a return to some more creative playing you know, like, and it has a couple of songs in there that are, you know, more to the point. Like, it's, what I think they were trying to do was combine the Black Album with some of the older stuff. Like, because because the Black Album was known to be a record where they trimmed a lot of the fat. Like, Enter Sandman was like a five-minute song. And if you look back at the, their old stuff, like, ju like Justice for All, 
there's a lot of songs that are like eight minutes, nine minutes. You know, they went really more progressive on those records. And even Master of Puppets, there's like three or four songs that are nine minutes long on that. So I think what they wanted to do was to do a couple of shorter songs like they did on Black Album, but then do some kind of longer songs that had more parts in it, more variations of parts within the song, right? Because one thing the Black Album did was they went very much to a verse, chorus, guitar yeah. solo, chorus, you know, mm-hmm. whereas the other ones, they have part one, part two, part three, verse, bridge part, part, part C, verse part again, core. Like it was very all over the place, you know? Yeah, that's why I thought that the Black Album might not be your cup of tea because it's I liked it. more standard. You liked it as well. Yeah. Huh? yeah. And what do you think about the sound? I think the sonics of that album is awesome. But the, the the sonics of the album is half the thing that I love about it because yeah. I, I remember the very first time I heard I heard stuff like the, the like Enter Sandman. Like, yeah. Like the, I was like, wow, the, the guitar sound was really good. I know Kirk and those guys were using the the eighty 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 MP one at that time, which is something that I had. I was like, wow, okay. it was so amazing that they had the similar sound, right? And I. Uh, when I listen to the rest of it, the drum sound and and his guitar sound, especially like just a riff so simple as like it sounded so huge. And when you watch the documentary, and Bob Rock is there saying that basically it's just left right guitar with one other guitar in the middle as a thickener, that's unbelievable. Because if you listen to their old albums, they were doing quad rhythm tracking, which means that James Hetfield would record a left guitar, right guitar, and then go back again to another left guitar and another right mm-hmm. guitar. So there's like four rhythm guitars on a lot of these songs. And to, to make it as tight as he did, it, it was unbelievable. But of course, we learned some tricks later that uh, Fleming Rasmussen, their engineer, mm-hmm. said that back in the day, they would slow the tape down so that he could play it a little mm-hmm. bit more accurately. Mm-hmm. Right, because some of the stuff was so fast for him to double that properly, he had to slow the tape, right? Yeah, Which also yeah. means so that he had to tune to the tape. Don't forget that, right? He had to tune his guitar now to the l- lowered pitch, oh, right? Yeah. And yeah. a lot of tricks, but the yeah, album sounded great, you know? Yeah, pre pre um pro tools, but yes, they, they had to be to come up with all kind of stuff. Yeah, I, re- I recall. Uh, Judas Priest talking about how they record all the cool sounds for their records, like the marching in metal gods. Yes. They stood with a, with, <laughs> they had like a uh, a plate with, with forks and, and cutlery. Yeah. And they moved it like this up and down in order to, to create the sound. So they, they did have to be, you know, come up with all sorts of ideas in order to make the sounds that you just can download now. And, and there's really no effort in creating them. And we'll see where AI takes everything. Oh boy. But that's yeah. kind of, that's kind of uh, spooky to see where, where all the stuff is going. We'll, see well let, let me, so let yeah. me just tell you something quickly about the AI that, that, that that's concerning to me. Uh, there's a there's a dream theater album out called the astonishing it came out a few years back it was like a concept record a really long like hour and a half album long and in there they had different people doing well they had james had james labrie singing different people's like characters parts on the album so it was just him singing but with this guy who's really good at ai Mm. what he ended up doing was he got a copy of james labrie's 
old voice from like a second album when he had a really strong voice, AI that, but brought in other singers to sing some of the other parts. Like they would bring in uh, like Dream Theater's first singer, Charlie, to do some singing. Then he would bring in uh, like Jolyn Turner to sing a part oh. of the song. And he'd have all these people in there. And when you listen to it, it actually sounds like all these people were on there, like a young James Labrie, uh, you know, uh, some guy, uh, what's that guy from, uh, uh, from, like so, so, so some from other metal bands, he would they would take other metal voices, mm -hmm. and he would pluck them into the so different songs, and it, you would think that it's exactly how it was done, and it's not, you know. Yeah, if you could pick singers and um, guitarists and drummers for an album, what kind of album would you create? I think I, I would pick Paul Stanley, nineteen eighty four five, maybe somewhere around there his vocals i would use i probably use anton fig as the drummer and uh, um, solo wise i think i'd like if you could combine kirk hammett with this the vocals of paul stan it could be kind of cool and bass player well i've never been really much into bass uh could pick anyone maybe gene um, and try to have them do something in the vein of creatures of the night asylum something like that mm. and just push create and see what comes out <laughs> what kind of place would you pick for an all-star album if you could pick uh it's, it's interesting because there's a lot of people out there that i think are fantastic that i'd love to play with uh you know, one guy that, that I'd love to get on a record is like Marco Miniman. He's a great drummer. I think that I'd love to get him. Or honestly, and I and this is the thing I, I, I realized this yesterday, is as much as I was annoyed by Mike Portnoy of Dream mm. Theater, I come to realize that I really do love his drumming. I have to admit it. I have to be honest with myself. I think that he's one of the best drummers I've ever heard. Honestly, what do you think? Our... he's back now. Yeah, he's back with them. Yeah. And I think the reason why I was so annoyed with him was because he reminded me a lot of myself. He's very <laughs> controlling of his musical projects. And he's very, you know, no, no, let's try it this way. No, let's do this. And I, and I know when I was younger, I was kind of like that. Like even when I was doing concerts, the, 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 the promoter guys used to, I was in a band called Reckon With One. That's what we were called. And the, the promoter used to always say, hey, Reckon With Mark. So they always knew that, it was yeah. me that was always in control of it. And I think that that's what kind of bugged me about Mike Portnoy is that I saw a lot of myself in him. But mm -hmm. I have to admit, he's a great drummer. So I would pick him for sure on drums. Yeah. I would definitely, definitely take Getty Lee on bass. No yeah, no course. questions asked about that. Yeah. Uh, I would probably take Paul Gilbert as another guitar player with me. I really love him. But vocalist, I mean, there's so many great guys. I mean, I would love to get like Ray Ray Gillen, although he is dead now. But Ray Ray Gillen's a great singer. You know, there, there's all kinds of people I, I would love to have on a on a record. I mean, uh, where where to even start? You know, I mean, I like Jacko yeah. Jacksick from King Crimson, represent, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, you know, there's there's lot there's lots of there's lots and lots of people that I think I could. Uh, you know, uh, Steve, Steve, uh, Steve Rothery, not Rothery, Steve Hogart from Marillion. I love him. He's a great mm -hmm. singer and a great piano player too. So that would be beneficial. So there you go. Hogart yeah. on vocals, 
Paul Gilbert on guitar, Geddy Lee on bass, and Mike Portnoy on drums. That'd be something. Wow, that'd be an awesome well, band, actually. That album will probably land in the stores in five or ten years. You'll see. Someone will create it. <laughs> yeah, it's, a, it's the future, and it's scary. But we'll see what happens. Well, I guess that's the time we have today, Mark. Thank you for joining, and it was fun to hear some of your favorite Kiss deep cut riffs. So from me and Mark, see you next time, and keep on rocking. Thank you for spending time listening to the KISS FAQ podcast today. All sales are final, there are no refunds. If you'd like, look us up on Facebook or come over to the KISS FAQ message board and discuss the topic we've broadcast today. Don't forget to rate us on iTunes, Spreaker, or wherever you've listened to the show. We hope you'll join us again.